0: It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. I'll keep your eyes on the road, you up on the wheel. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: Lots of discussions happening on the internet about the state of the office, whatever that office may look like. From uh, I saw one particular story saying that Gen Z and the tail end of millennials are kind of waiting for all the baby boomers to retire so that they can uh, re- revolutionize the workplace to this yeah. one about remote work. There was a guy on uh, TikTok who posted a video saying that he was able to, with remote work, uh, crush eight hours. These are his words. Crush eight hours of work in thirty minutes. And uh, joining us on seven hundred and ten KURV to talk about remote work is Spencer O'Leary. He is a workplace expert. He's our guest right now. So, it, what can I, I, I assume this isn't the average eight hours of of work in thirty minutes? I mean, I'm sure your, your mileage may vary on this one, right?
2: Yeah, you wouldn't think that was the average of uh, most workers for sure.
1: <laughs> so. What is it that contributes to an environment that uh, allows more work to get done uh, remotely in some instances versus being in an office?
2: So what we found, and and at ActiveOps, uh, we help organizations measure their employees who are working from home or the office. Uh, And what we found uh, as employees work from home is probably because of less distraction and an ability to concentrate more, that one measure of good performance, which is productivity, how much work gets done, that went up as people works from home so that's a good thing and encourages employees to allow employees to work from home a lot of employees are enjoying working from home so that's at least one measure of performance that's a a good reason to continue that
1: for example i uh i I, i've worked in an office environment before where i was a a data entry clerk and just for the sake of discussion let's say that if i had um like a hundred documents to index over an eight hour day and if i get all that work done within an hour i'm basically essentially bored for the rest of the day and aside from taking on more responsibilities that don't you know really belong to me um there's really nothing to do so i mean what what's wrong with uh <laughs> what's what's the dynamic there between you and your boss when hey you know all the work that uh i'm on call for sorry that 7 p- hour period of time that i'm on call for that i'm not really doing anything can i just like leave early
2: yeah, and that's often a balance between employee and employer of what's appropriate uh, to get done. What, one sort of natural human thing that happens is, uh, you know, work is generally uh, done in, in whatever time you're given available to do it. So what often happens in that type of environment is an employee will just go slower for a longer period and sort of drag the work out. That's what they tend to do in the office. That's not what they tend to do at home. They tend to, as your example states, they get the work done in the first hour and then they've got nothing to do for the other seven. But as long as employee and employer have got you know good data behind that they know how long has been worked they know how much work's done then they can agree what the working day should look like they can agree if they can help somebody else out who's perhaps got got nine hours work to do in eight hours and they're struggling so it all starts with having good data about who's doing what when and then and they can have a good conversation between the employer and the employee and make some good decisions
1: i can understand oh we're joined by spencer o'leary who is an expert on managing remote employees with uh, activeops.com He's our guest on your 956 drive home. We're talking about remote work. What uh, When it when it comes to people that are... What's the, I guess, the discussion that should happen between an employee and uh, a manager when it comes to micromanaging? Because I know the, the manager is like, hey, listen, I need something to show the higher-ups that we're, we're doing fine in our department, right? And uh, at the same time, I'm not trying to micromanage you, but I am trying to keep tabs on how much work is getting done. Not that I'm trying to pressure you, but... I need to make sure that everything gets done in in a timely manner. How how are managers dealing with that?
2: So I always describe it as the sort of appropriate measures and then inappropriate measures. And the appropriate ones for me, there's, there's a few of them, but three of the most important ones, I group two of them together in there. I call them inputs and outputs. So that's how much work do I get done and then how many hours do I get that work done? If a manager understands those two things, they know how many hours they've got at their disposal, they know how much work gets done. And that's a fair thing to measure in any business. The third one outside that group for me is it's more recently heightened through, through COVID and caused by people working from home, and that's employee well-being. And that's making sure that it's not just about how much work I get done today, but have I got a healthy organization that can produce output tomorrow and next week and next month? Uh, and those well-being metrics are, are definitely harder to measure, um, but it's really important that organizations get this balance right, get production right, how much work that I do, in how much time, but balance that with some well-being metrics to make sure you've got a a healthy workforce capable of delivering in the future.
1: And uh, speaking of well-being, this was something that was brought up to me by several people that work in both retail, and an office environment, and in a healthcare environment. But people that have been contracting, say, the coronavirus, and uh, one, still showing up to work, to saying that they feel like they're forced to show up to work because they're going to miss out on money if they don't show up, and they end up showing up sick, and they end up getting you know the rest of the department sick. What what has what has been kind of the I guess the the average state of things among workplaces when it comes to I guess COVID leave has that changed a whole lot over the past two or three years?
2: Yeah, and it's, it's not just it's not just COVID. It's sort of any illness that affects the availability of staff to work. But one thing is for sure that if we go back into 2019, uh, managing a workforce has never been easy. Uh, sort of the age-old team time problem, have I got enough work to keep everybody busy or have I got enough people to do all the work that needs to be done? That's a, that's a juggling act that most managers have tried to perfect over, over decades. And what, what COVID has, done has just made the job even harder. I've now got some people working from home, some people working from the office. I've got illnesses like COVID, and there's probably a, something different, another variant, or another illness round the corner. It means I've got more variable uh, availability of staff. So, if you like the complexity of just trying to make sure I've got these two balancing checkpoints: have I got enough work? Have I got enough time? How do I work that out? It's just got harder and harder for managers, and that's where people like we come in at ActiveOps. I'd encourage anyone out there who's a, a manager of 50 people or 5,000 people. Uh, just to think about what what technology have you invested in that's enabled not your workers to work from home, but that's enabled your managers to manage people who are working from home, and sometimes those managers are remote as well. And a couple of years ago, two of the greatest tools a manager's ever had is their ears and their eyes, see and hear their workforce. Those two things were taken away, and we're now trying to nearly manage people without being able to see them, without being able to hear them. And that's just a really hard challenge to overcome.
1: Yeah I I guess this leads to why a lot of Gen Z and millennials are kind of waiting for the baby boomers to retire from the from the workplace that are that are managing some of these businesses because they want to revolutionize things. And I guess uh in in the future what what do you imagine is going to be one of the the big factors in change in the workplace say 5 years 10 years down the line?
2: So I think one of the things I've definitely seen deteriorate uh, as more and more people have worked from home as well as employee well-being deteriorating and employees need to work out how they keep that in check and balance it's also the things that just as humans coming together we do well so one of the ways that people get on um um, and that gen z population is going to get promoted over the coming years one of the ways that that career success happens is building strong relationships at work driving creativity and innovation and doing that remotely doing that without face-to-face human contact is is really, really hard. So what I'm seeing happen, and a lot of businesses are talking about the hybrid workplace of allowing people to work from home some days of the week and some them in the office other days, it's really to try and drive that creativity uh, and drive that relationship building so that we can have a Gen Z population that's just as good in future generations as the sort of baby boomers are today. I think that's as big a challenge as... managing people's productivity and making sure they're not taking too many breaks, that's really a thing of the past. The world is now all about protecting employee well-being and make sure we have career progression for our next generation.
1: Thanks for making some time with us today. That's Spencer O'Leary, expert on managing remote employees with ActiveOps.com. This is Newstalk 710 KURV, your 956 drive home.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 drive home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: Well, we're going to find out whether it's good or bad for uh, McAllen Real Estate right now. Uh, Greater McAllen Real Estate... um, mogul wow i had a bunch of words and then i had a bunch of blank space i don't know the all-knowing all all see. lee Jinks joins us on your nine five six drive home for a look at mccallan real estate so how are things going right now we've been hearing things ups and downs all over the place how are we here good afternoon guys
3: uh now i'm afraid to even talk to you and hearing the last part of that segment i'm like oh where are we what are we talking about (laughs) Real estate. Let's just stay on real estate. Yeah, the yeah. market has been absolutely insane over the last couple of years, and mostly driven by the fact that we've had zero, not zero, but a very, very low I- inventory. That low inventory has caused rate uh, house prices, median prices to go up and up, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. Um, and I then keep hearing people talk about well, does that mean we 're in a bubble we 're going you know we 're going to see a a major drop in the market. I do not see anything uh, that's indicating a major drop in the market. We still have a low inventory and a lot of demand, so there's still a supported market there. But I'm also hearing that the market's beginning to soften, so I pulled up stats just to confirm, and yes, I am seeing that the inventory, for example, statewide went from 1.1 months of inventory last quarter to 2.1 months of inventory this quarter. And then in McAllen area, it went from two months of inventory to 2.7 months of inventory. So that's, um, I guess that's good news in that you're going to start seeing a few more houses available. If you're trying to buy something, you might actually find something now, but it's still going to be a fight because you're going to have multiple uh, bidders on properties, at least desirable
4: properties.
1: As far as inflation and all these other economic factors that, that drive up home prices, about how much higher um, are they right now?
3: Okay. So I kinda went back a few years, but let's just go back one year to twenty twenty one. Median home price for McAllen was still up because just not before, you know, two years before that it was one hundred and fifty. It's now it was one oh I'm correction, it was one hundred and eighty thousand five hundred in the first quarter of twenty twenty one and in the first quarter of 2022 it was 208 so we're still pretty good increase um, though i told you that the uh the uh inventory has starting to um, come back a little bit you would expect prices to kind of soften but it went from 208 to 2255 so prices are still going up on pr- on houses and then you add in interest rates what that means is um people are going to have to pay quite a bit more in their monthly payment. I just read an article earlier today saying that we're looking at 50% more in their payment because of increased prices and interest rates.
1: Joining us on 710KURV from Greater McAllen Association of Realtors is Lee Jinx. Davis Rankin, your question.
5: 50%, an extra 50%, that ought to stop things in their tracks. Uh, Or am I hopelessly out
3: of date? Yeah, yeah. Well, true. I mean, you think it would slow things down. But the thing is, is people have to live somewhere. So they're going. Now, again, we're not talking about people who live in their house, and they've increased their payment by 50%. I'm saying people who were going to buy a particular yeah. house today, uh-huh. they would have to ha- their payments would be 50% greater than than those. Well, so what that means is that I now can't qualify for that house any longer. So now I have to buy a smaller house than I would have before. But there's still demand. There
5: there was a study or a news story that showed the bulk of the uh, purchasing activity in a recent time period in Fort Worth, I believe it was Tarrant County, was uh, investors, out of state investors, and um, and I'm glad you brought that that up. Yeah, that activity goes on here. Who who are these people? I I confess a negative idea that they just run prices up, and it's it's unsustainable. For them tell me where i 'm
3: right, you know or wrong. I, I keep I keep hearing that that they 're breaking you know, and, and they 're bad, awful people um, i don 't know, maybe I give everybody too much grace, but um, you know I just see it as a market as a market, however, it does hurt people, and i 'll explain so you 've got institutional buyers, this is large corporations that are coming in and they 're purchasing, or just investors, even if it 's just a, a sole you investor know. that can purchase a property Well, they go in, yeah. they buy it, they renovate it, and then they either sell it for more or they put it on the rental market. Now, n- you know, I've heard people say, well, they're taking that off the market. Well, n- not really. They're taking it off the market long enough to improve it, and then it's going back on the market. Well, then we can't buy it because they put it on the rental market. Well, now it's available as, as a rental so it, that we didn't have before. So it's still housing and it's still available. But that's the thing that I'm seeing with, that, that, that probably hurts my heart more than anything, and that is your first-time or your entry-level buyer, yeah. they're just priced out of the market. For one, houses are selling for more than appraised value. Well, if I'm getting a loan, the bank's only going to give me enough money to buy it based on the appraisal. They're not going to give me the extra money I need to actually outbid the next bidder. So a cash buyer is going to be able to come in, bid more than it's actually worth based on the appraisal anyway. Mm-hmm and outbid any of these uh, entry-level buyers. So the entry-level buyer really has no chance of buying a house today because you've got, like you said, investors and and institutional buyers coming in and buying these things up. That's on the downside. But I'm also seeing companies that are starting to create um, opportunities for these types of buyers where they can rent and still create equity and then either take that equity and buy in the near future, or just continue to increase that equity. So I'm seeing some innovative uh, companies out there starting to provide these types of alternatives.
5: When's the market going, when when will interest rates be sufficient? Because I'm sure you've seen the headlines from other parts of the country, and I think the headlines may be overwritten, but um, eventually it's going to tamp down. It's going to be too much. People can't afford it or don't want to afford it. Especially, I would think later in the year when inflation really has sucked all the padding out of their budget. When do you think things will will moder- moderate here,
3: or will they? So i got in the, I got into real estate uh, in the early '80s, and 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 Davis, you probably remember. Your your prime rate was twelve percent. People were well, getting an eighteen percent rate and happy and excited about it. I saw twenty two percent rates, and pe- we were selling real estate as fast as we could because people were still buying it. So interest rates aren't going to be the only factor that slows things down. Um, if if the economy itself, st- you know, uh, puts a lot of pressure on the market mm-hmm. as a whole. Yeah, we'll start seeing that happen. All the Fed's doing is increasing those rates to keep things from spinning out of control. Yeah, you're, so a 5% right. rate and what we have today, that's to me that's practically free money even though yeah. I know going from a 3% rate that's scary, but when I used to see like I said 12 and 18% rates it it, 5% isn't as is scary <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah. Th- I, I and, do, and to, I to agree.
1: reinforce what you're saying, when I was in banking, yeah, that, they, they didn't care so much. They cared about the interest rate. Don't misunderstand, because we had some pretty creative interest rates at the time. But it was the <laughs> flow of money that worried people more than the interest rates did. Correct. Lee Jinx is with Correct. the And you'll start, uh, greater, you'll, you'll start seeing
3: th- things like adjustable rate mortgages as those interest rates go up. And we'll start seeing things that we used to see in the past. Uh, it'll happen.
1: Lee Jinks is with Greater McAllen Association of Realtors. Going back to the article Davey said from uh, North Texas, uh, there was there was a particular line, Davey, and help me out here on this one. But it was, I think the supply of houses bought was like the lowest it had ever been, but the money yeah. they made off of it was incredibly high. That sounds about yeah. right. But I, I would think that the market,
5: the ability to make a lot of money investing in homes and i've known people who buy uh, i'm talking about lots of money buying sort of like buying a mutual fund of homes is the thing i would find destructive but yeah i would think the way to make a lot of money is to invest in major metropolitan areas where there's going to be more money rather than down here but tell me where <laughs> i'm wrong <laughs> but
1: well, compare, um, compare um, the two I, areas anywhere, uh, look
3: we whoever you are you need housing And we've got what I know. I don't know what the current population is, but I know there's more than a million people just on this side of the border. Um, That's a lot of people. Uh, So there's plenty of space and and place to make money in in real estate, even in the valley. Uh, I don't think you have to go to, uh, you know, Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth or or Austin to do that.
1: Yeah, don't don't feel bad about not knowing how many people are here because technically we don't know either because of the census. Oh man, um, well, we're a million well, and a half yeah, probably. It,
3: it, it varies daily, <laughs> doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, as we're, far we're as told that fifteen hundred people uh, a day come into Texas, so um, and uh, migrate to Texas from from other you, other states. Are you talking about the ones who come into Del Rio? They
5: like to enter the country at Del Rio
3: into the welcoming arms of the border control, well, or? I'm I'm not talking about the international border. I'm just talking okay. about people that come from other states yeah. like California that they, yeah. they're tired of the high taxes and, and they come here. Um or yeah. from any other state for that matter. Yeah.
5: I had a friend who did that. He had a he had a nice home in the LA area. I don't know what he sold it for, but it was at least a million, I suppose. Well, I don't think he spent that much when he bought a home in, in the San Antonio area. He got a nice home and put, put a little money aside. Sure. So it's just cr- stuff out there is crazy, and I don't understand how people afford to
1: live there. I, as you, as competitive as things are, Lee, uh, are we wh- when somebody when a McAllenite is looking for a, a house around here, they're not just um, they're not just competing with other McAllenites. They're, they're not only are they dealing with people out of state, but out of country, right?
3: Well, true. I mean, the the, the um, Mexican national that comes and, and purchases property here is has been common for a long time so that's you know part of the part of the factor part of the equation that you have to look at um, ultimately I don't know that if I'm if, as an individual buyer I'm looking at you know trying to find a house I'm not necessarily trying to figure out who all the other buyers are I'm just trying to find out if I can bring together enough cash to buy this house that I want <laughs>
1: That's a good point, Lee. Thanks a lot. Hey, uh, thanks for stopping by and giving us some of your time here this afternoon. Thank you. That's Lee Jinks with Greater McAllen Association of Realtors joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: This is your home for Houston Astros Baseball. Weeknights, weekends, all season long here at 710 KURV. Astros Baseball brought to you by Riverside Development Services, F&T Valley Motorsports, and Mission Incredible. One thing that's ramping up is the discussion on school vouchers in the state of Texas, especially between the current governor, the great state of Texas, Greg Abbott, and the challenger, Beto O'Rourke. And joining us on 710 KURV to throw us right in the middle of the debate is Harvey Kronberg from the Quorum Report joining us. So where do we start on uh, school vouchers? I guess, first off, let's just explain what school vouchers are, and then we'll get Mm -hmm. into the the, the discussion.
6: Well, the the, uh, most prosaic way to describe it is money follows the student. So if the student uh, decides to go to a private school or a charter school or a religious school, state funding goes to follow them, uh, follows them to whatever their destination is. Uh, As it is today, um, uh, money only goes to uh, uh, public schools. And uh, the core of the issue, frankly, is that there's only a finite pool of money. Anything that you siphon out of that pool of money that goes to public schools uh, is gonna uh, presumptively hit the uh, rural uh, the rural schools the hardest. and um typically, this has been an ideological um starting point for Republicans uh, mm-hmm. God since two thousand and five, as best I can tell. Um, and um, you do have a, a pretty good performance among a lot of private and charter and even religious schools, um, but they get to self-select their their students. Um, and the bottom line is the way school funding works is it's based on, pardon the expression, but butts in chairs or butts at desks, um, how many students are actually in the classroom, show up at school, um uh, uh and so if you start siphoning students off uh that money will follow the uh, if a voucher pro- plan was uh, created uh it would the money would would uh, diminish to uh, to school districts and uh I like to point out to folks most people don't know and when you get out into West Texas, you have students that have to bus for an hour to get to their school or an hour to get home. And the last time I paid attention to it was something like three hundred million dollars goes just to rural transportation
4: to mm. get
6: students to and from schools. Um, the- so anything that that undermines that or siphons money off is going to impact those those uh, rural schools, which also happen to be the epicenter of their community. Yeah.
1: So I guess, in in other words, and you can. By all means, please correct me. It, essentially, the way I've always heard it is that the schools essentially, like you said, butts and seats. But they get they get a certain amount of money, more or less, for each um camp, right. uh, each student that they all have day. per per school.
6: <laughs> and, oh, a and, day and, and uh, government fees, It's called WADA, weighted average daily attendance. Yeah, and, a uh, day, right? It actually it, it even reaches into urban school districts, the Austin Independent School District, because we have. Uh, um, uh, so many families moving for affordability purposes outside of Austin to the surrounding uh, 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 communities. Uh, the school population in Austin has dropped, uh, a significant, uh, at least notably, I don't know if significant is quite the right word, but it's, cut, wow. it's forced them to cut their school budget here, even in a place as prosperous as Austin. And you can Isn't only there, imagine what uh, would do to a rural community if you started uh, reducing the pool of money that was available for yeah. schools. Joining us on schools.
1: 710 KURV sure. is Harvey Kronberg from the Quorum Report. We're talking about school vouchers right now and the discussion that's happening across the state. And I'm going to be blunt to the point that I'm almost sounding ignorant about this, uh, but if if my kid does not go to do uh, those schools, if my kid goes to another one of these schools, do I really care? Does it really matter? Does, isn't it kind of a wash?
6: What do you mean? Uh, you're talking about if they they opt from one public school to uh, to, uh, to another public school, uh, it, that is a wash. But if they opt to go to a private school, a religious school, or a charter school, that's not a wash. Uh, that uh, that's actually an absolute subtraction from the. Uh, the funding pool, the big pot of money that funds Texas schools. Remember, we've got over a thousand school districts in the state of Texas, and, um, uh, try, and the Constitution mandates, uh, it's one of the first mandates in the Constitution that the responsibility of state government is, is public education, and that everybody has equal access to, uh, a reasonably good education. And any way you look at it, that's a dollars and cents kind of argument, so. Um, uh, But see, I'm glad I asked it then
5: Uh. Well, uh, let me Let me throw a (laughs) We're talking with Harvey Kronberg Who is the owner and publisher Of Harvey Kronberg's Quorum report Which you can find on Online Uh all the news about what's going on, the real news about what's going on in Austin. plus links to
6: <laughs> The semi underbelly of state politics. politics.
5: Oh, my God, I can't uh, believe it. I don't want to I can't unread that. Um, <laughs> let me let me be romantic for a second. The uh, Texas Constitution written in 1874 after the Civil War and after we got rid of those radical Republicans. But it it seems to embody the belief that a that uh, spreading education around at least minimal education reading writing and, and arithmetic was a goal of government that was a good thing that was an accomplishment free public mm-hmm. education and that does not seem to be um subscribed to 100% these days is that part of the backdrop
6: well the um the, no the um I use this third term loosely, but the intellectual background or supportive for this comes from our philosophical background it comes from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is essentially funded by a couple of uh uh oil billionaires who are libertarians and uh one of their spokesmen uh tweeted not too long ago uh essentially uh expressing his contempt for teachers that uh they're just uh glorified babysitters um and uh, uh, um, have failed in their their job but that may be true harvey wow what
5: what about the idea because i've heard this from pardon me for interrupting but i'm enthusiastic you do hear from from people uh, occasionally on the radio but some mostly off off mic that yeah they Mm -hmm. do a lot of babysitting they get no support or little support from the administrators administrators get no support from the school board and it's just uh, what really goes on is not really known widely. But people know, they know, they think they know results, right? The kid's
6: not passing or mm-hmm. not
5: learning or something.
6: So maybe he's well, right. And, and particularly in urban areas, you've got lots of non-performing schools. Not yeah. uh, Maybe lots is overstating, but you've got non-performing performing schools. But if you're in a school district like Houston, you probably have 40 different languages in your school yeah. system that you're trying to... Uh, contend with and um and you've got to bring them toward into english i mean there's uh, particularly in urban texas there's a lot of um, uh, uh, reasons for the difficulty you know the bigger we become the more diverse we become um, you know as as one as one state representative uh, who got redistricted into a largely Pakistani uh area said uh you know he was uh, doing just fine representing them, but he was pretty rusty on his urdu.
4: Uh, Salam alaikum. Like, Try that yeah, for a starter. <laughs>
5: that's, what, that's what they taught Uh-oh. me at school. Um, is it um, so, so? Where does I mean every session I can think of the I don't think any Democrats participate. Republicans have always wanted to adopt a voucher program of one sort or another. School choice voucher program, and it never passes. Republican, rural Republicans in particular, vote against it because it's against their Correct. self-interest, one would argue. What is going to happen well, this the,
6: session? This, this is the first time the governor has made it a priority agenda item. Um, uh, it came actually kind of close to passing last time. Uh, was um, a pretty contentious uh, session, obviously, uh, for lots of reasons with lots of cultural issues. Now we've got critical race theory as a, as a p- potential issue and uh, the school boards that... Um, uh, well that famous terry McAuliffe line uh, who ran for governor in virginia if i remember correctly uh, yeah. uh, saying parents shouldn't have uh, uh, control over what's taught in schools and all of those yeah. have become flashpoints uh certainly republican flashpoints um and with uh, the 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 governor leaning into it um it's it and we're going to have a fairly substantial freshman class of rural legislators who uh, may not even know their local school superintendent uh, they will by the end of the session i guarantee but uh, they uh they may not beforehand and um uh yeah. it's gonna it'll sail through the senate because dan patrick wants to sail through the senate and the lieutenant governor pretty much controls uh, the senate what with happens? an iron fist uh the uh, speaker however comes from a small school district area, the, the Golden Triangle, the Beaumont area, and um, is, I think, keenly aware of uh, what happens if you start stealing funds from uh, the, this pot of money that funds public schools. And uh, has,
1: uh, uh, Harvey, has a, uh, Beto work sounded off on this yet?
6: Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, press releases came out today on that, you know, as he visits. Hmm. He's been mostly doing this, you know, multi-city tour. Uh, of rural texas and uh that is a key issue uh it never really rose to the level of gubernatorial debate previously um because no governor had actually ever endorsed publicly endorsed vouchers or made it a priority item uh, but uh, uh places like uh, lubbock and san angelo are suddenly i'm not going to say in play just because of that but they are certainly in play because uh one of the mantras here in Austin is you can mess with just about anything but high school friday night football and um, <laughs> if you start defunding, <laughs> well, defunding schools yeah, not right. the police but defunding schools uh you're going to affect friday night football and and um, the the two the two epicenters of most rural communities are the schools and the churches and uh, that's what the community is Mm -hmm. built on and they take it personally and the governor sadly went out and did talk radio in lubbock not long ago and he said "Uh, this won't affect anybody in rural texas which is not true Um, if we started out with uh, a billion dollars going to school funding and then uh, the number of student the student population drops and that money gets siphoned off then suddenly you've got 950 million Uh, And the ones that are going to feel that the most are the uh, sparsely populated uh, school districts uh, Mm -hmm. that uh, are the basis of uh, the Republican, the, the enduring Republican majority in Texas.
5: It's a long way, though. I mean, I'm not challenging you, but I think for the listeners to go, well, maybe finally we'll get a Democrat. It's a long way i i would think it's like the last two yards in football or whatever the cliche is are the toughest. I would think this would be the toughest part right now uh, well for, this for is a, uh,
6: this is just one of the list of grievances that uh in his it, when he ran yeah. against uh, Ted Cruz in two thousand eighteen and Rick didn't uh, never attacked uh uh Cruz never talked policy issues. it was all about charisma and fundraising and social media. This time he's throwing elbows, and uh, the world changed pretty dramatically last night. I don't want to get off into abortion politics, but what happened in Kansas um, uh, sent a a shot across the Republican bow uh, because um, even your rural red, solidly red Republican counties that typically vote uh, uh, like 70 75% Republican voted uh, overwhelmingly against the Republican position of removing the constitutional protection to an abortion in the Kansas Constitution, and uh, uh, you you put that with the grid, you put that with school vouchers, uh, and yeah. you don't have to do a big shift in 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 vote, but. Uh, the other yeah. interesting thing that come out of Kansas, which uh, makes this even more destabilizing, is that apparently 70% of the people who have registered to vote since the Dobbs Supreme Court election, mm-hmm. uh, Supreme Court decision which overthrew um, uh, Roe v. Wade, are women. And when you My poll, code? how do you poll Harvey people to register this. We just don't know. So, um, uh, yeah. it was women interesting who are that we spoke with, a, with, with an economist recently. the caregivers um, show out in bigger show up in bigger numbers, and a bunch of them are new voters. It um, yeah. it takes a lot of the predictability out of the next election.
1: Right. It was interesting. We spoke with an economist, I think, last week or two weeks ago, that. And it wasn't so much about which way the, the wind was blowing, it was just the fact that the wind was blowing at all it, from these <laughs> controversial topics in the state of Texas mm-hmm. that's kind of deterring businesses from uh, stomping by here in Texas or setting up shop here in Texas, I should say. Not that there's a lot of it, because we're still number five on the on the list of uh, mm-hmm. business-friendly states, et cetera, et cetera, but we did go down a couple of pegs. So it's yeah. it's interesting you bring that up, Harvey. But uh, we've run out of time this segment. Hey, thanks for stopping by and telling us about the school vouchers. That's Harvey Kronberg from the Quorum Thank Report you joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. This is the 956 Drive Home.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: You're listening to News Talk 710 KURV. This is your 956 Drive Home with Zach Cantu and Davis Rankin. I got a, a pretty big segment for some of you 2 A guys who might be wondering this very question, or even if you don't own a gun and you're just curious about how this whole procedure works. We, we met up with... Edwin Walker from US Law Shield, he's our guest right now, and he joins us to talk about the, the standard operating procedure of what happens when you get into a fight with somebody out in the middle of the street somewhere, and uh, you're, you, use, you have to use your weapon to neutralize it, or you, or you get into a gunfight with somebody. What's the standard operating procedure? Or Take us through a situation like that. What, what, what are you supposed to do as a gun owner?
4: Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, this is a very interesting topic because, you know, I I'm I'm, most people are familiar with the fact that Texas has the Castle Doctrine, and the Castle Doctrine is uh, centered around a bunch, a set of very specific circumstances that are fairly objectively provable you know somebody was attempting to unlawfully and forcefully enter your house or into your car or your place of business so those are facts that kind of objectively can be proven a, a fight on the street is actually the exact opposite of that it's very subjective in which uh, your use of force or deadly force is going to be judged on whether or not it was reasonable would a reasonable person which is a person defined as an ordinary and prudent person, would that person have used the amount of force uh, that was necessary in this confrontation? And that can be very, very tricky because obviously people have different perceptions of what is reasonable. And so getting into a fight on the street and using your gun is probably the most perilous situation in which you can use your gun. And so obviously the, the clearest Kind of one of the clearest, brightest lines is if the other person has a weapon. If the other person has a deadly weapon or what can be perceived as a deadly weapon, then using your gun is fairly objectively reasonable. So if they pull a knife on you or they have a club or a chain or uh, obviously another gun, uh, anything that can inflict deadly force upon you, then you're allowed to respond with deadly force. But if it's somebody approaching you with your fist, um, a lot of prosecutors and police, unfortunately, have the attitude that you can't shoot an unarmed man, which we know that, that, that from the beginning of mankind, people have been able to kill each other with their bare hands. So, you know, shooting a person who's not armed is not totally out of the question, but... Uh, like I said, a lot of attitudes of police and prosecutors. Uh, They have that attitude that you can't shoot somebody who doesn't have a weapon. Um, That's an erroneous perception. And that's the one that we find ourselves fighting against most of the time.
1: Joining us on 710 KURV is Edwin Walker from U.S. Law Shield. And full disclaimer, we're not addressing or referencing any instances or anything locally that's happened in in the past few days or anything like that, this is just in a vacuum. This event happens. Hey, what do you do? Speaking of which, so once the event is over, what what are you supposed to do? It once you've um, once you fired your weapon, you've you know, I guess you could say won the challenge. And uh, what what do you do with law enforcement after that?
4: Yeah, um, what you need to do, so let's say that there is a a fight that has escalated to the point where somebody has pulled their gun and they have discharged it and it has killed or injured the other person, uh, then it is incumbent upon you to call 911 because just as a practical matter, the first person to call 911 is generally given the kind of uh, the, the perception that they are the victim, and certainly when you call nine one one, you want to call you want to report it as the crime that's being committed against you. And so, hopefully, uh, people aren't out there just getting in random fights in parking lots. That would be terrible. Uh, but hopefully, the individual has tried to perpetrate some crime against you that then can give you protection about what we call um, the, the castle doctrine for for forcible felonies or for violent felonies. So if somebody was trying to rob you, if somebody was trying to commit a sexual assault against you, if somebody was trying to kidnap you, uh, those that that perception can give you rights under the Castle Doctrine. And so that's what you would want to start with. You call 911 and say, hey, some guy just tried to rob me at the HEB. Some guy just tried to sexually assault my wife. Some guy just tried to kidnap my child. So you throw that out there first. You certainly, certainly do not lead with, "Hey, I just shot a man." Um, that's uh, that's a terrible way to start a 911 call. So you call to describe the crime that's been that has been committed against you. You identify yourself. You give them just simply the who, what, where you are. You give them your name, where you're at. What service you need, which is probably an ambulance, uh, the police will naturally follow the ambulance uh, and then give them some identifying features for yourself so that when the police show up, they know that you're the guy that made the nine one one call so you say, you know I'm here in a yellow shirt and uh, blue jeans or I'm wearing a red baseball cap or uh, you know i'm'm I'm, I'm, you know just as a physical description of yourself, so when the police come up, they immediately know. You're the guy that called 911, tell us what happened, and they're going to be getting your side of the story first.
1: I see. Joining us on 710-KURV from U.S. Law Shield is Edwin Walker. Davis Rankin, your question, if any?
5: Yeah, when you want to make sure when the cops roll up that you're not standing there with your
4: gun in your hand, I assume. Yeah. Um, because at that well point. that is that is one of the that that's one of the things that's going to be dictated by the circumstances uh yes in a perfect world you want the police to see your hands you show them your hands first you show them that you don't have anything in your hands that way you don't risk getting shot by them uh but also you want to make sure that the situation is safe and so yeah. if it's somebody that you're having to hold at gunpoint, uh, you know, maybe you say that in your 911 call. Look, I've got this guy. He tried to rob me. I've currently got him on the ground. I'm holding him at gunpoint so the police mm. know that when they show up. But, yes, in a perfect world where everything is safe, you do not want to have the gun, you know, the best, the best. you know, it's generally best to to say lock the gun away so that you're not actually in possession of it. If you are in possession, if you're in a place where you can't, holster it. Do not have it in your hands. And when the police roll up, you actually have your hands exposed so that they can see them because that's what a police officer is trained to look at first. You don't see where your hands are at.
5: I would assume that you don't want to go. I just shot. He came at me and I shot the SOB. I killed him. (laughs) I don't know if people actually do that, but... uh, Oh no! They, I'm sure oh, you no, want to demonstrate
4: do. a level of tax. And you're right. You don't want to make any kind of of exclamations of of pride or joy or jest or anything like that. Um, it's a very obviously it's a very shocking situation. It's very alarming. And um, and the DA will use that. I mean, it's, it's kind of, and we've seen, we've seen them run the gamut. We've seen the DAs criticize people because they're too excited. We've seen DAs criticize people because they're not excited enough. We've seen wow. the DAs criticize people because they say things in a very straightforward, methodical way. We've seen DAs criticize people because they don't give straight answers. So it's Mm. just, if the DA, if the police and the DA have focused on you, everything you do is going to be criticized. And so what you just have to be guided by, and and I understand this is very difficult when you're in a situation like this, you just have to kind of keep in mind that everything you do is going to be judged under the umbrella of whether or not it was reasonable. You know, would an ordinary person have behaved the same way you did under those same circumstances?
5: is it fair to say that no matter the circumstances and obviously this is all running very quickly no matter the circumstances that you're the the person who did the shooting whether it's fatal or not is automatically suspect or kind of has to is has to prove that they're not guilty of murder um, that'
4: Well, the police obviously are going to be suspect of anybody who has a gun. If the person sure. who has the gun is the person who, you know, who committed uh, either the aggravated assault or the murder, whatever the circum, you know, whatever or the, or the, the homicide, whatever the, um, you know, whatever it appears to be on the face. Uh, but then, you know, hopefully the facts will develop. If there's a third party witness that's who supports your story, that's great. The police love that. And and there are certain situations that you want to make sure that you get those, uh, I mean, I hesitate to call them keywords, but that you let law enforcement know immediately that there was a circumstance that not only were you justified in using deadly force, but you, in the event that the DA chooses to charge you, you're ultimately going to be given the defense of uh, of reasonableness and like so, i said so, that's either you know the most obvious situations are your home your car your place of business uh being one of those places but the second most are like i said somebody who's trying to rob you somebody who's trying to sexually assault you or kidnap you um or somebody who's trying to murder you and obviously the most important evidence with regard to saying i had a reasonable belief this person was trying to murder me is if they did in fact have a weapon so if they did in fact have a weapon uh, that goes a long way to showing that your use of deadly force was reasonable and that's why i will say that most of the cases that we see where individuals do get charged and they do get prosecuted are situations where the deceased uh the dead party did not have a weapon Um, because there then you have to go you sort of have to develop all those additional circumstances of why did you think this person had the ability to kill you with their bare hands?
5: Well, yeah. you didn't know they had bare hands. Wow. You thought they had a gun. You thought they had a knife. Or he had a baseball bat. Couldn't you cite that?
4: Well, that's what I'm saying. If they have a weapon, you're, you're good. Yeah. Okay. You know, yes, you, can, you almost always can shoot somebody who has a weapon. But most of the cases we see are individuals who shoot people who do not have weapons.
1: Okay right, yeah, and, and it's kind of tough, like if, for example, you've, you've seen the movies where one of those guys has their hands in their jacket pocket and they point at somebody like they have a gun, mm-hmm. well, yeah, yeah.
4: And, that, and and that's per, you know perception is in many ways reality. and so uh, yeah, if somebody pretends to have a weapon and and you know there are plenty of you know, police have shot plenty of people in that situation. Yeah. where they thought they had a weapon, they said they were reaching for a weapon, they thought they had a weapon in their waistband or their pocket or so. So, yeah, if you can give a description that says, I thought he was going for a weapon, oh. um, then, yeah, your perception of what you, that that will be allowed in your defense. In fact, the jury ultimately will be instructed that if they believe your perception was true, then they are instructed to believe it was true from your point of view. So if somebody had a had their hand in their pocket and you were like, look, show, show me your hands, show me your hands, and they didn't. They were approaching you. They were approaching you in an aggressive manner, they had their hand in their pocket, and you said, show me your hands. They did not show you their hands, and you said, I thought he had a gun in his pocket. Um, turns out you shot him. He did not have a gun in his pocket. Uh, the jury will be instructed to say, look, if you believe that a reasonable person would have thought he had a gun in his pocket, even though he didn't, then you are to you are to take that into consideration you are to, to basically believe that that is true from the defendant's point of view
1: that was very very clear and well explained thanks a lot for you. for for giving us some of your time to explain that That's Edwin Walker, U.S. Law Shield, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com. N-K-U-R-V. Hey, as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing.